be in the house of God for our 36th message from this book of this epistle of 1 John. I've enjoyed these series of messages, These Things I Know. And we're ending this book on a very high note. Uh, we will have a couple more messages, at least one more message next week. But the, these last, the second, or the, four, the, the 100 verse and the 104th verse of Scripture we're looking at this, this morning in this book. And we've been uh, several places in chapter 5 as well. Let me just review very quickly before we move forward this morning. We said in chapter 5 of 1 John 5, verses 1 through 3, that I know God and his love brings confidence. And there's a confidence that's in, found in Jesus Christ, of course, the confidence that his love brings, that we are accepted in the beloved. Verses 4 and 5, we preached a message entitled, I know victory. And this is a victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Then we looked at verses 5 through 10, and we saw the cardinal foundational doctrine of the word of God in regards to who Jesus Christ is. I know Jesus Christ is God, God in the flesh. Then we looked at verses 11 through 13, and I know I now, I can speak for myself, I can't speak for you, but I trust that it's germane for most everyone in this room, if not everyone. I know I now have everlasting life. I'm not looking forward to having it someday, I have it now in Jesus Christ. And then we looked at it a couple of weeks ago, a message entitled, I know he hears me, heeds me, and heals me. From 1 John chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. And then last week we looked at the message from verses 14 to 17. We looked at that subject of, I know God has deadlines. There's a deadline that sin causes, of course, a deadline of death. And there's a, there's a day when this earth will be no more and time will be no more and Jesus will come and create a new heaven and a new earth. We look forward to that day. But we pick up where we left off last week and I really have one text verse, it's verse 19, but all the verses are what I call and I've termed in this series of messages in-your-face verses. And these are as much in-your-face verses as you'll find anywhere in the Bible, anywhere in this whole entire book of 1 John, who's, which has been an in-your-face book. But notice this politically incorrect language. Notice what it says, verse number 17, once again, allow me to emphasize. All unrighteousness, it's all unrighteousness, is sin. And there is a sin not unto death. We know, the key word of the book, is, of course, is that word, K-N-O-W, we know. Four times we find this word in verses 18, 19, and 20. And we know that whosoever is born of God sinneth not. But he that is begotten of God keepeth himself, and that wicked one toucheth him not. And we know, again, verse 19, and we know that we are of God. That's pretty audacious. We know we are of God. And the whole world lieth in wickedness. And we know for the third time, verse 20, that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding and that we may know him, there it is again for the fourth time, that word know, that is true. We know him that is true and we are in him that is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is, in case anybody's missed it, the true God and eternal life. Today's in your face truth is real simplistic. I know, and I've titled the message, I know I, not, I, I know, I know, <laughs> I know I know the truth. And I know I have the truth. That's pretty in your face. I know I'm right. 
I know I have the truth. I know I'm not, I, I'm not the truth, but I have, I have the truth. I know that he lives within me. I know what's right and what's wrong. And I know that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And no man cometh unto the Father but by him. I'm not arrogant this morning. It may sound like I'm arrogant, but I'm not arrogant. I am serenely confident that the Bible, the very word of God, that I believe is truth. I believe God's word is true from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-21. Every single word of God is pure. The Bible says in Psalm 119-160, Thy word is true from the beginning, and every one of thy righteous judgments endureth forever. Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. Yea, let God be true, but every man a liar. I'm preaching from a book that was written by some 40 different, 41 different men over three continents over 1,500 years, many that, men that never met each other before in three different languages, and yet I see the symmetry of the Word of God. The Bible itself is true, every word of it. We can believe it and bank on it. I believe the Bible more than I believe the Internet, by the way. I believe the Bible more than I believe the newspaper. I even believe the Bible more than I believe the news media. How about that? That's how much I believe the Bible. And the Bible is true, every word of it. I got on the web you know, because we find so much truth on the web. And so I got on the web and I looked at uh, a website and uh, 10 reasons why the Bible is true. Let me just give you 20 words, 10 answers, 10 reasons. I won't, but just a sound bite. Why the Bible is true. Well, manuscript evidence. There are more historic ancient writings of the word of God than there are of Aristotle and Plato and Socrates combined. Uh, archaeological evidence. I've been to Israel. I've seen the archaeological ruins that the Bible spoke about, and, uh, and the Bible is true, and archaeology confirms it. Eyewitness accounts. And I think of all the martyrs of days gone by, the years gone by, that have gave their life for... You don't give your life for a lie. You only give your life for the truth. Then the uh, fourth uh, reason why the Bible is true, at least to one author, is the corroborating accounts. The the accounts from Jewish and non-biblical witnesses about the, the veracity and testimony of the word of God itself. Josephus, the great historian, Jewish historian, not a Christian, but buttresses what the Bible says about itself. Literary consistency, I've already mentioned, 66 books, think about it. Over some 1,600 years from three continents, 40, 41, 42 different authors, three languages, some would say a fourth in Chaldee, and yet the word of God is all, all, we see the symmetry of the word of God. We see the prophetic consistency. There's 300 prophecies in the Old Testament alone concerning the first coming of Jesus Christ, the first advent of Jesus Christ. They were all fulfilled to the letter. And then, of course, the sixth reason why the Bible is true is the expert scrutiny. And down through the centuries, critics have tried to destroy the word of God, but the word of God the, like the anvil, it remains. The hammers are worn out, but the word of God, like the rock that it is, remains. Leadership, leader acceptance. I meant to put in the bulletin, and another day, another time, I'll put in a great quote in from Abraham Lincoln, of course, on April 30th, 1863, the, the proclamation of thanksgiving of prayer and fasting he ordered for our country to the one true God of heaven to pray for our, our, uh, uh, for our iniquities and ask God for healing in the the beliefs of world leaders throughout history that have testified to the veracity and truthfulness of the Bible. The global influence of the Word of God. And number 10, the, 
the, the, maybe the most powerful evidence, truth, that the word of God is true is the evidence of changed lives. You can't argue with the testimony of a changed life. The one that was brought up out of the miry clay and set their, and their feet set upon a rock and a, a new life in Jesus Christ. And so I know I now have the truth. And let's take our word of God now this, this morning here, verses 17, 18, 19, and 20 of 1 John 5. And let me give you one know-so-truth that we find in each one of these four verses, beginning verse number 17 once again. The Bible says, all unrighteousness is what? Help me out. Sin. I know, I know the truth about sin. First of all, sin, it's real. Sin is real. It's not a figment of our imagination. It's not a figment of a connived, contra- connived uh, form of guilt trip that Christians put upon others or preachers put upon others. Paul said in Romans 7 and verse 13, was then that which is good made death unto me. God forbid. But sin, that it might appear sin, working death in me by that which is good, that sin by the commandment might become exceeding sinful. I know, I've seen the effects of sin in my own life and the effects of sin in other people's lives. In family lives, we'll look at that this fall, Lord willing, and look at all the families, dysfunctional, real families in the Bible is the plan. To look at these families and how they, they had sin that, that was rabid in, and, and, uh, throughout their, their family and throughout their individual lives. Sin's real. So I typed in, is sin real, into the Internet the other day. And uh, you, you do that and see what comes up. Of course, the atheist website comes up very first on my web. Here's what uh, the lead sentence says of uh, one web, atheist website about what, does sin exist. Sin is not real because it is an idea that is both irrational and unreasonable. Well, of course sin is unrational or irrational. Why would somebody want to destroy their life with, by a life of drugs? That's irrational. Why would somebody like to destroy their life by booze? Why would people want to have a destructive lifestyle that, that it leads to a dead end and, and, and death? Yet people do it all the time. Of course, sin is irrational and unreasonable. If the atheist goes on to say, if God did, not, did exist, I would not worship him because I find his acts, as told in the Bible, more repulsive and immoral than anything I could ever commit. Really? Here's another quote from uh, website number two about sin, denying the reality of sin. Basing ourselves on what the Bible defines as sin, we can rest assured that sin does not exist. Sin is not a genetic component of our biological makeup. Nor is it something that we can touch, taste, feel, or see with our five senses. The only thing that, that the only place that sin exists is in the minds of those that have been decided to buy into the myths of the Bible. Here's the third one. Sin is an offense against God. There is no testable evidence that God exists, really. So I look outside and I can see God as I look outside. I can see God exist when I look at you. I can see God exist in my very being, the very fact that I'm breathing, that, I, that, uh, that uh, God's given me eyes. Notice the, the, the writer goes on to say, there's no testable evidence that God exists no contemporaneous documentation that Adam and Eve lived. Therefore, there is no reason to believe that sin, including so-called original sin, is quote-unquote real. These quotes that uh, 
of atheists who say it's not real, but I've seen the effects of sin. I know that sin is real. It's real, and, and the Bible says in the Word of God, all unrighteousness is sin. Then I want you to notice that I know the truth about sin, that it's real, but it also I know that it ruins. Many verses teach us this truth. Sin ruins, ruins your life. It ruins our family lives. It ruins our church life. It ruins everything it touches. And the last sin is when it's conceived and bringing forth death. James 1 says, the Bible says, Brethren, my dearly beloved, do not err. And we see this sin that is ruins. But sin not only ruins and sin not only is real, but thirdly, this sin that 1 John 5, 17 talks about, it must be recognized. You see, you can deny sin if you want to. I hate to be bring up something so dreaded, but uh, they say that most of us have a little bit of cancer, some cancer cells, and I think all of us have some cancer cells in us, whether they metastasize or whether they start to uh, multiply. That's God knows that, and it happens so often when we don't even know it. I was talking to my buddy, Bob Ladigo, who's a widow at 59, or widower now at 59 years of age. His wife, Debbie, last year, I told the story. Perfect health, it seemed like, and was starting to feel bad, went to the doctor, and uh, she said, they said, uh, you have stage four cancer. Within one month, she was dead. She never felt it in her body, and yet it was there all the time. And sin must be recognized. The Bible says, Jeremiah 13, and verse number, or Jeremiah 14, verse 20, we acknowledge, O Lord, our wickedness and our iniquity of our fathers, for we have sinned against thee. Sin must be recognized, but more than sin being recognized, sin must be repented of in order for there to be a cure. Proverbs 28, verse 13, He that covereth his sins shall not prosper, but whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. Sin needs to be repented of and turned turn, turn, turn away from. I was, uh, I'm going to say this several times in different formats, maybe touch on it even tonight in the message. I was... We were down in Lancaster, PA, on purpose on Monday and Tuesday. And uh, we went down there getting ready for the trip. And I'm glad I went down. We went to this Psalm 23 garden, prayer garden. We are going to go there on our trip here in about two and a half weeks. And uh, I was so impressed when I, I saw the, the, uh, the homes of the Mennonites and the Amish. Uh, the, 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 the gardens were perfect. The lawns were all mowed. Honestly, I didn't see one lawn that wasn't mowed. They don't have electric lawnmowers. They, they, they have sickles and just the, the, remember those old push lawnmowers with the blades. They have no electricity. Their houses are beautiful, painted, and gorgeous. And then I went by the Yankee houses. That's in case you don't know who that is. That's us. That's the rest of us. And then the broken down cars in the, out in the, the yard and the, the house is falling apart and the grass needs to be cut and mowed. And here are all these people. We have all these modern conveniences and we're lacking and slacking, and here's these folks that have, have uh, choose to live without electricity, and they're living way better than we, we that live with, with electricity, with the modern conveniences. So I looked at that, and I, I said, that's, that's amazing here. And, uh, uh, but they, they chose not to partake of some things that are destructive in their life. Mennonites don't gamble. 
Mennonites don't get drunk. Mennonites, not all, some, some do, I don't misunderstand me. They don't, they, don't, they don't smoke. They don't do things that are destructive. They don't have destructive life habits that destroy them. But sin must be repented of. It must be recognized. And if there, there will never be cured unless we recognize it and then repent of it. And for godly sorrow, 2 Corinthians 7.10, the Bible says, worketh repentance. And so all sin, verse 17, back to our text, is all unrighteousness is sin. But then we get to a second truth that I know I know the truth of. That's found in verse number 18. It's a long verse, but it says the first phrase, We know that whosoever is born of God sinneth not. I want you to notice, secondly, I know the truth. I know I know the truth about sanctification. Sanctification. Now there's a big Bible word. But we're sanctified in Jesus Christ when we're born of God. And I am, that word sanctified, once again it says, and we know that whosoever is born of God sinneth not. I am, the sanctification sets me free. We just sang the song, and thank God I am free, free, free from this world of sin. I've been washed in the blood of Jesus. I've been born again. There's a setting free that takes place when we're sanctified. Romans 8.1 says, there's therefore now no not some, not a little bit, not a lot, but there is now, therefore now, present tense, no condemnation of them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. The Bible goes on to say in verse number two, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ hath made me free from the law of sin and death. I'm set free. I'm, I was once a sinner, but I was saved by his grace, and I, there's no, 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 no condemnation of them which are in Christ Jesus. We had that freedom that's found in Christ. We're set free. But not only we're set free, that word sanctification not only means being set free, but it means being, uh, that I am set apart. I'm set apart. Look at verse 18 again. And we know that whosoever is born of God sinneth not, but he that is begotten of God keepeth himself. But he that is begotten of God, we're born of God. We've been set apart. We've been set apart by, in, in two ways. The word of God, of course, the Bible says in John 17, 17, sanctify them through thy word. Thy word is truth. We're set apart by the word, by the washing of water, by the word, Ephesians says. Water is a wonderful, wonderful thing in our lives. Without it, we're dead. <laughs> Water cleanses us. Water gives us, quenches us, of course. There is no life without water. 50 to 70% of our bodies are made of water. And there's the cleansing of water. We've got physical life by water, but we've got spiritual life by the water of the Word of God, that incorruptible seed of the Word of God, that waters, living waters. We're set apart. Jesus said in John 17, verse 19, two verses after Sanctify them through thy word, thy word is truth. He said, and for their sakes I sanctify myself that they also might be sanctified through the truth. We're set apart, we're sanctified through the truth of the word of God. We're cleansed by the washing of water by the word. Hey, let me get real practical for a moment here. Let me talk to Christians. I would encourage you, every one of us, every day, in one form or another, we might not drink a glass of water, but we have water every day. That's for Fasting. And I don't know of hardly anybody that fasts in, in a 24-hour period and doesn't drink at least some form of liquid, but that's another story. 
But uh, God's called us to be set apart by the word. I want to encourage you every single day to read some of God's word every day. I mean, uh, make it a part of your daily life, daily regimen. Read a proverb. I, I've been reading the last couple of years. I've done it for many years, actually. But I read the proverb of the day every day. And I uh, read it through 12 times in a year. Read God's word through every day. And, and the more I read God's word, the more I love God's word, the more I enjoy God's word. So I encourage you to be, and you'll, it'll help set you apart by God's word. But then it says also in this verse here, verse 18, it says, but he that is begotten of God keepeth himself. Now we are kept, according to 1 Peter 1, 5, we are kept by, not by our own power, but by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed up in the last time. Salvation is all of God. We're kept by his power. But Jude 21 says, verse 21 says, keep yourselves in the love of God. Here it says, keep ourselves. And we need to walk in this sanctified fashion that God has called us. We're set apart people. We're peculiar people. We're different than the world. Let's face it. The world uh, looks a certain way. They act a certain way. We've come out from among them this morning here to be part of the Assembly of God, Church of God. And we're set apart. God's made us different. There are people ought to see a difference in us. They ought to see sanctification in us. So I, this, this sanctification the Bible teaches, I know it's true. I've been set free. I've been set apart. But then verse number 18 for the third time. We know that whatsoever is born, whosoever is born of God sinneth not. We've been set free. But he that is begotten of God keepeth himself. We've been set, up, uh, set apart. Then it says this. Uh, but he that is begotten of God keepeth himself, and that wicked one toucheth him not. Or we, I want you to notice that we're begotten of God. I am sinless. Being sanctified means I am sinless in the spirit. There's the qualifier. Now let's turn back one page in our Bible. I want you to review this verse with me. First John chapter 3, these verses I should say. First John 3, 7 through 10 actually. But notice what it says, little children. Now, who's that talking about? What type of people are those? Little children. Only Christians. It's not talking about non-Christians. Saved people. Sanctified people. Little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous. End of story. Even as he is righteous. He that committeth sin is of the who? Help me out. Devil. Don't raise your hand. You know, they don't, don't do it. I could ask you, I could reverse and say, how many have not sinned today? Maybe there'd be some, I don't know. But I dare say we've all sinned today. I was on the computer early this morning, about 6.30 in the morning. Caleb walks in and I, was, I had a computer malfunction. It's like, ah! My computer went crazy and I, says, and I couldn't figure out how to fix it. And I had to call in my young assistant and say, Caleb, help me. I got frustrated. I got, I got upset. I probably, I probably started to sin. I got frustrated with my computer. I want to put my fist through it. No, just not, not kidding. But uh, we, 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 we get sin. We're, we're, we're still sin. But the Bible says, he that commits sin is of the devil. The devil sinneth from the beginning. He's the father of sin. Father of lies, John eight forty four says, for this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy, 
absolutely obliterate the works of the devil. And then verse 9 punchlines the truth home, this truth of sanctification being sinless in the spirit. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. I'm going to spell it out for you that you understand. I'm trying to make it as clear as I possibly can. In the spirit, there's my, my, my body, soul, and spirit. And in my new nature that's been redeemed, my spirit, I do not sin. In, this, in, in God, I'm sinless. But the problem is I'm still, my spirit is still enrobed in this flesh. And I still have this corrupted mind. And, my, and I still sin in my body. O oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this sin? And so there's a, there's a war going on between my spirit and between my flesh, between your spirit and between your flesh. And in our spirit, we never sin. I know I've probably overused my grandchildren in illustrations, but here goes again for the 84th, 100th time this year. But my, all my grandchildren, they're perfect in my eyes. They really are. Now, if you find a flaw with my grandchildren, don't let me know. I don't, want to, I don't want to hear about it because they're perfect. But I know they're really, there's another side of me that knows they're, they're not, they're far from perfect. But when I look at them, they're perfect. When God looks at me, he sees me sanctified. He sees me sinless and, he see, and I'm sinless in his spirit. But then back to verse 18 of chapter 5. It ends with these words. And the wicked one toucheth. Who's the wicked one? Help me out. Satan, the devil, Apollyon, the destroyer. Toucheth him not. Cannot lay hold on him. I am secure forever in Jesus Christ. John 10, 28 says these words. I give unto them eternal life. Now, as elementary as I can be on purpose. When you get saved, when you ask Jesus into your heart, what kind of life does he give you? Eternal life. Now, how long is eternal life? Really? Yeah, really it is. That's the mind blower, isn't it? Well, some people don't think it's eternal life. It's conditional life. Some people believe. Some Christians say that it's conditional life. But God says, I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my, my father's hand. My father, excuse me, out of my hand, Jesus said. My father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my father's hand. I am secure forever in Jesus Christ. That's sanctification. I don't sin anymore in my spirit. I'm sinless in, in the spirit. I'm set apart. I'm set free. I'm secure forever. Now we get to verse 19 and notice the second or third truth that I know that I know the truth of. That is found in verse 19. And we know that we are of God. Think about that. If you believe that you're of God this morning, say amen. amen. All right, now some of you might not have said amen because you say, boy, that'd be audacious to say I'm of God. I now am of God. And I, I know that. And it's not because I grew up in a church. It's not because I was catechized or confirmed or sprinkled or I've tried to live a good life because I haven't always lived a good life, by the way. And it's not because uh, I try to do good to my neighbor or try to be kind or all those nice things to try to fulfill the, the golden rule. No, no. 
I'm saved by him and him alone. I'm saved by his blood. I'm saved because I'm of God. Well, how did I become of God? The verse 19 speaks of salvation. I'm born of God. You see, and we know that we are of God or we're born of God. First of all, I know I'm saved. We take that word for saved so nonchalantly now, so take it for granted. Some people make fun of it. I've even seen bumper stickers over the years, you know, saved, I was never lost. Or I'm sorry, I don't know about you, but I'm not lost. Many people don't think they need to be saved. They make fun of the Hollywood. Hollywood makes fun of being saved. And folks make fun of being born again. But Jesus said, you must be born again. Jesus said, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That wonderful word saved, S-A-V-E-D, Romans 10, 9, that if thou shalt confess, can you quote it with me? That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. I was thinking of John. I can't think of John's last name anymore. I knew him. I thought I knew him pretty well, but he was in our church in Danbury 34, 33 years ago now. Colonial Hills Baptist Church. He was the church treasurer. John, this is when I first started noticing vanity license plates. John had five letters on his Connecticut license plate. S-A-V-E-D, saved. John was, uh, wanted everybody to know that he was saved. And people, he, I remember him telling stories. He gets a lot of, got a lot of different reaction from that, that vanity plate, as they call it. Saved. But uh, I know that I'm saved. I know that I've been born again. I've received Christ as my Savior. And no one can, the devil himself can't talk me out of that. I know I'm saved. But I, not only that, being sa- saved, being born of God means that I am a saint. In Romans 1, 7, in fact, in 1 Corinthians 1, in 2 Corinthians 1, in Galatians 1, in Ephesians 1, in Philippians 1, in Colossians 1, in 2 Thessalonians 1, you get the picture. In all of the first verses of those epistles, and then going on to Hebrews and Peter and so forth, you will find in every one of those epistles that Romans 1, 7 will suffice, to all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't need a worldwide church to, to, to grant me sainthood. I've been granted sainthood by the, the God of all heaven. You see, he sainted me. He made me a hagias, a set-apart one, a holy one. The word sanctified comes from that same root word. Uh, he set me apart. He set me free. He, he made me sinless in the spirit. And he gave me security in Jesus Christ forever. I am a saint of God, and no one can ever take that away from me. My last name, I always say I got a lousy last name. One day God will change it. But I'll be a shot. I was, I was sainted with that name, Saint Shot. I hate that name, but anyhow. I, if you're going to call me Saint, call me Saint Marty, please. No Saint Shot. But God will change it someday. But uh, I, I have that branding. I'm a saint when I received Christ as my Savior. Before the foundation of the world, God knew. I, and uh, I'm saved. And then, thirdly, it says this here. Uh, verse 19, we have to read it one more time. And we know that we are of God in the whole world. Now, we know that we are of God. We're saved. We're saints. And the whole world, everybody else. I mean, it's not mincing words here. It's not part of the world. 
Everybody that's in the world, then the whole world lieth in wickedness. That's pretty audacious. The whole world lies in wickedness. Once I was lost, but now I'm found. The light of the world is Jesus, the song said. You see, I am separated from the lost. Jesus said in Matthew 25, verse 32, And before him he shall he gather all nations, sets kindred tongues, tribes, and people, every individual. And he shall separate them one from another, as the shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. I'm a sheep of God now, and my she- I hear his voice, and I know him, and he knows me. And he shall set his, Jesus went on to say in Matthew 25, and he shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then shall the king say unto them that is on the right hand, Come, ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for, from God from the foundation of the world. And so, I'm separated. The moment I received Jesus Christ as Savior, retroactively from the foundation of the world, God knew all along that the day would come as an 11-year-old boy when I went into that country Baptist church and heard the gospel preach that I would receive Christ as my Savior that night. He knew that. And he separated me from the lost. And I'm one of the saved now. That leads me to verse number 20. It's the most meatiest of the four verses that were the most, at least, uh, the longest of the four verses. It says, and we know that the Son of God has come. Notice the fourth truth that we know, according to this in your Facebook. I know, I know the truth concerning the Savior. Concerning who Jesus Christ is, the Son of God. I want you to notice the first phrase and the second phrase. We'll divide this verse into six little phrases. And we know that the Son of God has come. Notice the first great feat, and that is the incarnation of the Son of God. Christ came in the flesh. Mystery of all mysteries. Many Jewish people have a hard time with this. They cannot figure out how God, how God who is a spirit, can dwell amongst men. But their own prophet, Isaiah, prophesied it. Habakkuk prophesied it. Uh, Micah prophesied it. The Old Testament scriptures, the Pentateuch prophesied it that Jesus would come and be born in the flesh, and the, uh, that he would be incarnated. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word what? Was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Verse 14, and the Word became what? Flesh, and dwelt amongst us. Mystery of mysteries. And we beheld his glory as the glory of the only begotten of the Father, monogenes, the one and only, full of grace and truth. This Jesus, this incarnated Jesus, 1, John, or 1 Timothy 3.16, if you want to know the verse. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. God came in the flesh. The Lord Jesus Christ, the incarnation of the Son of God. And we know that the Son of God has come. He came the first time, he's coming the second time. The second great feat is found in the second phrase. And has given us, John says about himself and about his readers, he has given us an understanding. Notice, secondly, the illumination of the sons of God. It's amazing how how intelligent some people are and how great IQs many people have in the world of academia and politics and 
on and on. We could go in science and in uh, the, the different isms and sciences and philosophies. A lot of smart people. I always I've said it many times, it's amazing to me how, how highly intelligent some people can be and how highly dumb people can be at the same time. It's amazing. What's their problem? They have information, but they don't have illumination. You see, when I received the engrafted word of God, if you want to verse 1 Timothy 2.13, when I received the engrafted word of God as divine inspiration, it led me to divine illumination. The entrance of thy word giveth light, it giveth understanding to the simple. God's word illuminates. God's word uh, magnifies and shows us the truth. And so I know, I know I have the truth. I know, I, I know that there's the incarnation of the Son of God, that, that God came in the flesh in the form of Jesus Christ. I know the illumination of the Son of God. But then I want you to notice two great finds in the middle of this verse, of verse 20. He goes on to say, and hath given us an understanding that we may know him, that we may know him that is true. Notice the positive truth. That we may know him that is true. Paul said in Philippians 3, verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being made conformable unto his death. Jesus said, I am the way, not a way. The truth, not a truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. That's a positive truth. Jesus said, all the Father gives to me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will no wise cast out. There's a positive truth. The positive truth that, that we know him, and more importantly than we know him, that he knows us, that is true. The positive truth, but then notice the positional truth. Says this, and we are in him that is true. Positional truth. We know him. We're in Christ in you, the hope of glory. He lives with us and abides with us forever. I do this carefully, but that word know, we see first, where we first see it in the context of the Bible. The Bible says, and Adam knew his wife Eve. Of course, it's talked in a very intimate context. I think most of you figure that out positional truth of knowing somebody more than anybody else and intimately and only, the, only that is pictured, of course, in the marriage union between a man and a woman. That intimate relationship that the world cannot understand and know not about. Right now, and I, I'm thinking of, uh, and he's dead now, I can use him, I won't give his name because many of you old-time Torrington people will know who I'm talking about a very well-known figure in Torrington, Connecticut. I'll just say it that way. Don't ask me after the service. I'm not going to tell you. But I was in his house several times. He was a very rich man, millionaire. I don't know. I mean, let me take that back. I'm sure he was multimillionaire. Uh, employed several hundred people. That's as far as I'll go. And uh, I was in his house. He graduated from the finest of universities in America, the finest. And uh, he wanted to uh, analyze me. He wanted to psychoanalyze this poor Baptist preacher. And, uh, well, I went to him for another reason, but he, he, he enjoyed talking to me, so he wanted to know what made me tick. And he, he, he thought for sure that, he said, uh, I started giving the gospel, and he, he, he'd, he'd laugh. He said, oh, oh, you're good. You're good. 
And uh, he said a couple things. And he said, hey, that's good psychology. You're, you're really doing, and it's like, I had to time, I had time out him. I didn't, I don't think I timed out him, but uh, I, and I said, no, 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 no. No, what I'm telling you is the truth. It's not, I haven't followed cunningly devised fables or science falsely so-called. I'm telling you what the word of God says, and I, I really happen to believe this. And it's true whether you believe it or not. There's positional truth. There's positive truth. Thank God for the man. He died, died a multimillionaire. As far as I know, he, he never found the truth. He knows the truth now. But it leads me to not only two great feats, two great finds, but then thirdly, letter C in our worksheet, two great facts. At the end of this verse, it says, and we know him that is true, or pardon me, we are in him that is true, even in his son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God. There it is right there. Notice a word about his deity. If you want a verse on the deity of Jesus Christ, where does the Bible say the Jehovah false witness says, well, there's no verse in the Bible that says where Jesus claimed, where the Bible says he's God. Well, there's a verse right here. Jesus said, this is the true God. The deity of Jesus Christ. He's called the mighty God in Isaiah 9, 6. He's called simply God in Genesis, or John 1, 1. He's called the blessed God in Romans chapter 9, and verse number 5. He's called the great God and the Lord, Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ in Titus 2 and verse 13. Our God is real. Jesus is real. He's the true God. He's not a man-made God. He's not an artificial God. He's not a figment of our imagination. He's real. He's the true God. He's the word about, our deity, about his deity. But then it ends with these words. This is the true God and eternal life. A word about our destiny. Everlasting life. I've given an illustration many times. My family and I, we didn't grow up in church. We were the proverbial bus kids before they had buses. And I lived in little old uh, Rock Creek, Ohio, it was an 11-mile drive to New Lyme, Ohio. There they had the New Lyme Baptist Church, and we had folks who lived 12 miles away, one mile from my house, but a mile farther away from my, my place. And they would pick me up one mile from their house, and we would drive the last 11 miles to New Lyme Baptist Church. And I, I heard the gospel there. But I, the first time I ever went to church was vacation Bible school, like we had a week and a half ago. Now, back in those days, we used to have it for two weeks, Monday through Friday, and then then the next following Monday through Friday, and it was long periods of time. I've told the story many times. It was, uh, and we had, we had his and her outhouses behind the church. We had no nice air conditioning. It was the dead of summer. And uh, we sat there, and I think we listened pretty well for three hours a day for two weeks straight, us kids. But the very first verse of Scripture I ever learned, what do you think it was? Well, I heard several things. Let me tell you what it was. And it was for the, I think, the robin on the little paper you got, the little sticker robins that they used to have. Really, as best as my memory can remind, you got a, you got a birdie on your picture, your page, if you memorize these verses. And you get six birdies if you memorize six verses. So I memorized Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. I could quote the whole verse, the whole psalm to you. Most of you can quote it yourselves. But I got to the end. And I'm an eight-year-old boy. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I wasn't that good a reader. I was an eight-year-old kid. 
I thought Shirley, I had a Shirley in my class, I thought Shirley was a girl. I really did. And I thought Shirley will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And for, I mean, I quoted that. I said, what's Shirley got to do with this whole thing here? I can't figure it out. And I thought that for a long period of time until somebody corrected me at the old age of maybe nine, I guess. But surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I remember later on, and I'll do this quickly, but I, 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 got, I was told about the second coming of Christ. This is the 1970s, middle 1970s, early 1970s. And I said, wow. The Vietnam War was just winding down. And uh, I, I thought, and I remember this prophetic, not pathetic, but this prophetic preacher came in and preached this, this last doctrine or last things, the second coming type message. And I thought, man, I'm never going to make it in 1976 to graduate from high school. It's not going to happen. Lord's coming back long before that. Well, it didn't come back. And then I got into the 80s, and of course I went to Bible College in 1976, and and I thought, I heard preaching on the second coming of Christ. I thought, there's no way. All the turmoil of the 80s said, Christ is coming back in the 80s. And then the 90s came, and Christ is coming back in the 90s. And then Y2K, remember that? I was sure the Lord was coming back by, before the year 2000. And then here we are in this new millennium. I just looked at the calendar the other day. In fact, I was writing a checkout the other day, and I wrote 2018. I said, 2018? How could this be? I didn't think I'd ever see the year 2000. But here's the point. All these years now, since a teenage boy, when I first heard the story, when I was first saved, I soon thereafter heard about that Jesus Christ was coming again. And I remember hearing that song. It was one of the great songs. There was a black gentleman that used to sing it, and I, I had his record back in those days. And he sang that song, Years of time have come and gone since I first heard it told, how that Jesus would come again someday. And back then, I, it seemed so real that I just can't help but feel how much closer his coming is today. I got to tell you, humanly, I'm surprised the Lord hasn't come back already. I'm really surprised, humanly speaking, just looking at the world's situation and so forth and all we've been through. But I know, one thing I know, I know that he's coming back and I know he's coming back soon. And so here, here's, the, here's, here's the truth to know. Here it is, ready? In the end, truth wins. In the end, we are on the winning side, and so, so I want to encourage you. Maybe I should have put it this way. Stay on the winning side. Get on the winning side if you're not a Christian. Receive Christ as your Savior because sin is real. Sin will ruin you. Sin will destroy you, damn you to hell. Sanctification can set you free, set you apart, make you sinless in the Spirit, secure your heaven forever. Salvation can, it will save you, saint you, and separate you from the wheat, from the goats, from the sheep. And then the Savior, of course, he is the true God and he is Jesus Christ. Not my belief system, but my, the person that I believed in, the Lord Jesus Christ, he is my eternal life. My salvation is secure in him. In the end, truth wins. Get on the winning side. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word this morning. Lord, to some people, John was a lunatic. He was crazy. He was so crazy that history says that they decided to boil him in a cauldron of hot oil. They banished him on a little speck of an island out in the Mediterranean called Patmos. Lord, he was on the spirit on the Lord's Day and you gave him the revelation, the unveiling of Jesus Christ. We thank you for that. Lord, the world calls them fools. 
But Lord, we know that they were fools for Christ's sake. And Lord, I pray that you'd be with Christians this morning. Know that we're, may we know that we're on the winning side. May we stay on the winning side. Lord, when we look up for our redemption draws nigh, we look forward to that day. Lord, maybe there's someone here that needs to receive Christ as Savior today. Do a, do a work of grace in their heart that only you can do. Spirit of God, we pray. Even save them this day, we pray. We'll thank you for it, Lord. Lord I pray you bless down these moments, this just minute of invitation, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's all stand and let's turn in our hymn book to a song we, I don't think we've ever sang for an invitation in all the years we've